Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for joining us at Nikki Dare Radio on Blog Talk Radio, heard worldwide by millions of listeners with your lovely host, Ms. Nikki Dare. Our podcast hosted by Nikki Dare is your home for education to safety and survival, leadership and inspiration. Nikki Dare is the founder of iDare Inc., a registered 501c3 with its mission to educate and mobilize resources for preparedness and sustainability. iDare is a grassroots credo and personal mission based on its pillars of excellence, integrity, diversity, adaptation, resilience, and empowerment. Ms. Dare's personal mission is to help you encounter your purpose by unlocking your inherent potential and finding joy in the journey. Nikki Dare is the published author of The Audacity of Veracity, a columnist, women in the field of Western Outdoor News, California's publication of Fishing and Hunting. Ms. Dare is a certified firearms instructor in rifle, shotgun, and handgun, RSO, range safety officer, and CERT, Community Emergency Response Training Member, a FEMA certified training, women's advocate, transformational mentor, and a seasoned BPR change management consultant since her early 20s in transforming companies. And decades later, she is reinventing her purpose. Nikki Dare's life has been spent passionately in helping others going through transformation, both personal and professional. And now, here's your lovely host, Ms. Nikki Dare. I like that. Hey, everyone, welcome back. Uh, glad you can join me again. I am Nikki Dare, your host at Ida Outdoors. Nikki Dare's Knock Talks, Episode 4, Guns and Children in the Home. First off, I am uh, extremely excited, as you all you already know. As always, very humbly know that this episode on Knock Talks, since we have launched has brought so much controversial response based on facts and honest talks. And I am grateful for all of you, all loyal listeners out there. Thank you. We are bringing back this morning again Mr. Safani to our studio uh, discussing more nugs. Guns, guns, and guns. I, I call it nugs. Guns and children in the home. Richard Safani, California Department of Justice certified firearms instructor, and Utah Concealed Carry Instructor, he has been teaching farm safety for over 30 years. He taught combat handgun to law enforcement as well as security personnel, has fought gang attack, carjacking, several street assaults, and attempted muggings, and also, as we already know, home invasion. I am so grateful to have you, uh, Mr. Richard Safani, in my studio back again this morning. Good morning and welcome. Oh, Nikki, thank you for having me again. Good morning to you. Oh, good morning to you, sir. I'm glad you can join me again. Let's get at this, okay, shall we? I'm just excited. Um, many people, there are guns and children in the home here. Many people, unfortunately, believe that the two do not mix. Why? Has it always been this way? No? No, 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 absolutely not. Uh, historically, families have always taught their children to help around the house. This help has not only taken the form of helping with food preparation, cleaning, and such, but also with food, food procurement. Consequently, children were routinely taught to help with the hunt, to fish, and to help prepare the food. 
since uh, children were taught to hunt, they were taught how to use the tools of hunting. What kind of tools were they? Well, originally these tools were spears, bows, arrows, right. and later <laughs> specifically rifles and shotguns. Handguns right. were not routinely used as hunting tools. Were those children who had guns then in their homes, guns for hunting and the procurement food, at any time, at personal risk because of those guns, did those children uh, use the hunting rifles in their homes to shoot other children at school? Did those children drive by neighboring farm communities and shoot their neighbors? Oh, well, <laughs> the answer to every one of, of those questions is a resounding no. No. However, <laughs> these days, it is not unusual for us to unfortunately hear about another school shooting. Uh, are school shootings a recent aberration, therefore, or have school shootings been a common occurrences in America? I'm going to pause a little bit here. Well, Richard, I want to share this with you. As you know, um, I'm a mother of two boys. They are now 24-year-old and a teenager, 17-year-old. I still call him Pumpkin, my Pumpkin, all grown up now. As you know, too, I have been around firearms over 20 years. I grew up in Texas since I was a little kid. So I've been around guns for a while. Now, as a responsible gun owner, law-abiding citizen, and a loving parent to both of my sons, it is my responsibility to teach and educate my kids about the safety of these guns because there are guns in the home. So learning the safety and safety handling and respecting of these firearms is a paramount to me and crucial. So these are the foundation I've set forth to both kids when they were youngsters. And they were only four and a half years old. Um, I introduced them, you know, I would introduce them to non-firearms trainings that involve self-discipline and safety and self, you know, perhaps like uh, self-protection, self-defense classes, namely martial arts and karate and many other uh, outdoors fun activities out there. And the, my boys would learn the fundamentals, the fundamentals of these discipline skills. Only after a few years later of all of these classes and trainings, the nine firearms, I would introduce them to firearms-related trainings. Back then, my son was only nine and a half years old. He, uh, you know, I asked him to go with us, with me and my husband, to take his first firearms training, a four-day handgun training. Uh, because of his young, small hand, we, uh, we started him with an XP 9mm, you know, to be ergonomically correct. Uh, but now he has already uh, grown up, so, you know, he is uh, capable of, of handling the Glock 19 as his personal carry. Not, on, not, on, not until his 10th birthday, though, after a series of safety trainings, you know, um, you know, then I feel confident for his birthday. I bought him a 22 rifle. Okay, back to the four-day training. It was definitely a large class of 50 students, ranging from Border Patrol agents, law enforcement, military, as well as civilians were there. He finished with the rest of us adults. Of course, there were always a couple of instructors standing by on his side at all times, ensuring safety on the firing line. Yeah, throughout the entire training, and I had no doubt on, on knowing my son, he had no issue whatsoever with safety at all. So, in fact, you know, I remember this. The instructors were using him, yes, a nine and a half years old, as a role model to the class, as someone who followed, you know, safety rules to the teeth. It was an amazing sight to see in class. I just want to throw that out. That's my pumpkin. He's a very good shooter, too, as well. Now, at the cl class closing ceremony, he received recognition from the school, being the youngest to finish and followed safety on a four-day handgun training, and I'm so proud of him to doing so. In addition, 
uh, I want to share this also. I think it's a good true story. <laughs> we went to purchase a gun at a local store for me, and I brought my son with us. At the time, he was only nine years old. So, you know, as we looked at different rifles and pistols, the clerk handed me, for me to check out the ergonomics, you know, uh, the, the guns and everything, the rifles, pistols. At the time, I was looking at pistols. At one point, my son asked me and wanted me to check out the Glocks, you know, the pistols that I was looking at. And, Mom, may I? So, amazing thing happened. <laughs> As the clerk handed my son carefully the pistol, nine-year-old, my son immediately did a safety check, checking the condition of the gun. While the gun, of course, he has it pointed into a safe direction, he chamber checked, he magazine checked, while his trigger finger is pointed off and outside the trigger guard. Very extremely professionally done and well-trained. Never at any time at that time was I prompted my son to do so. My son did all of this safety checks on his own, followed the basic safety rules of gun handling in a natural way. And, you know, the clerk was extremely amazed. I have no doubt the clerk was comfortable and confident in my son's skills and knowing my son understand the safety handling, perhaps more than many customers. You know, <laughs> I hate to say this, perhaps more than many customers he has seen at the store. So after my son looked at the pistol, before he handed it back again to the clerk, get this, he did another final checking on the condition of the gun. He chamber checked, magazine checked. I handed it over completely. It was very cool. I never forget that moment. Uh, next time I brought my son <laughs> to the store, the same clerk, the same clerk, and a couple other, you know, um, uh, audiences at the time, I, uh, they all remembered him. <laughs> what about you, That's Richard? Right. I, mean, I know you have kids also, right? Well, yes. Uh, you know, I, uh, I've mentioned before I have four children, and uh, I introduce, uh, have introduced uh, firearms uh, safety and usage uh, at their tender age of three and a half. In wow. fact, uh, our local newspaper out here in Santa Clarita, The Signal, uh, heard about uh, me and my company, and they sent a reporter to the range, uh, and they did a full uh, two-page story uh, with a photograph of my, uh, my son at the age of three and a half, uh, you know, putting the rifle up on a on a range bag, and in fact, he couldn't even pull the trigger back correctly. Uh, I had to help him pull the trigger back at the age of three and a half. And this was, a, of course, a you know, a, a 22 rifle specifically designed for children. And yes, so, yes, yes. Uh, my children have learned firearm safety uh, at a very early age. Uh, they, uh, th I mean, they're great. We we do not have a problem with guns uh, and children in the home. So, there you go. Well, okay, uh, let's take a look at this, at school shootings. By the way, uh, this data obtained from K-12 Academics website, the first recorded school shooting in America was July 26, 1764. It was an attack by four Lenape Indians entered a schoolhouse near uh, Greencastle, Pennsylvania, and shot, killed the schoolmaster and nine children. Yeah, well, you, you know, Nikki, we have to understand something, that this was not a school shooting in the traditional sense that we know it today. Uh, this was a result of the, uh, the uh, French and Indian Wars. Uh, understand that England and France were using the colonies. Uh, we, were the, uh, we were the proxies of a war between these two nations, and France had enlisted the Indians to rise up and attack against the uh, American uh, colonialists. So this was not a, uh, a random shooting uh, you know that we see today. This was a uh, this was a war zone uh, from you know two major countries uh, here uh, in America. So that that's what that was about. 
Okay, agree, agree, agree. Well, let's take a look at the history then um, furthermore. During the entire century between 1800 and 1900, when guns were as common in the home as a kitchen stove, there was only one mass shooting. On April 9, 1891, 70-year-old James Foster fired a shotgun at a group of students in the playground of I, I believe, St. Mary's Parochial School in New York, causing minor injuries to several of the students and but there were no fatalities, no fatalities. Yeah, yeah, Nikki, let's you know we need to really emphasize in the, a 100-year period in the United States, there was only one mass shooting. Now this was a, a shooting in the traditional sense where a person goes onto school property and randomly shoots, uh, you know, uh, uh, students or uh, or administrative staff, teachers. No fatalities. However, there's only one in that entire 100-year period. There were there were shootings at schools during this century, but they were um, relegated, uh, correct word, to individual squabbles, you know, over romance or disciplinary issues, things like that. The incident was one person shooting only one or two other people, and these incidents could not be classified, however, as school shootings because the victims were not random. The victims were teachers and administrators, uh, such that in over 50% of the shootings, the shooter was another teacher. <laughs> yeah, that's right, Nikki. So during this 100-year period, we we saw a student that was uh, you know disciplined by the by the teacher. Uh, the student would go home, uh, grab a gun, come back, and he would shoot that that particular teacher. Uh, we saw instances of a teacher or or just an outside person being romantically involved or wanting to be romantically involved with a teacher or or an administrator, and if they're romantic. Uh, if the romance wasn't, uh, you know, uh, given back to them, uh, then uh, they got upset, went home, got a gun, and and shot. So these were personal issues. So, yes, during this 100-year period, we did see shootings on school property, but it wasn't this random shooting of, you know, by one person mowing down a whole bunch of students. These were individual acts, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. grudges against one person, and that's uh, the extent of these shootings. We only saw one, maybe two people uh, that were shot. So these weren't the school shootings that we see today. Well, let's, let's go on, Richard. Uh, during the period of 1900-1940, there was only one mass killing of students. May 18, 1927, Bath, Michigan school treasurer, Andrew Kelly, after killing his wife and destroying his house and farm, blew up this, uh, the Bath Consolidated School by detonating dynamite in the basement of the school. Killed 38 people, mostly children. Yes, and again, this wasn't a school shooting. So yes, it did kill 38 uh, innocent children, but uh, this uh, this madman Andrew Kehoe uh, yeah. used dynamite. I mean, this was an explosive device. Uh, you and I cannot get dynamite today. Uh, we have to have a legitimate business use, like mining or or road construction, something of that nature, requiring a special permit. But this guy was a madman, and uh, so again, it wasn't a school shooting. Yes, it was horrible. 38 yeah. innocent oh, children yeah. uh, lost their lives, but. Uh, uh, again, so that, that's, that's what happened in that time period. Yeah, moving on. During the 1940s, there were no mass school shootings. The 50s, no mass school shootings. Now, during the 1960s, there were only two mass school shootings. Uh, I think one of which is August 1, 1966. <laughs> I was not existent. University of Texas, UT, massacre. Charles Whitman climbed atop the observation deck at the UT Austin, University of Texas Austin, killed 16 people and wounded 31. 
Yeah, Nick, you know, I remember this. I was in high school at the time, and uh, uh, I remember seeing on television uh, the Texas Rangers and the Austin PD, uh, you know, uh, uh, covering uh, themselves behind uh, trees and other barricades, uh, trying to shoot at uh, Charles Whitman up there on the bell tower. Now, he was finally shot by a, by a sharpshooter, but again, this was the only mass shooting during the entire 19... Uh, uh, well, actually, no, there's this one, there was one other. Isn't that right, there's Nikki? Another there was one, another yeah. one, right? There, there's another one in Mesa, Arizona, November 12, 56. <laughs> Still, I was not existed yet. Bob Smith, an 18-year-old, took seven people hostage at uh, Rosemar College of Beauty, uh, killed four women, and a three-year-old girl died. A woman and a baby were injured but miraculously survived. Smith had reportedly admired Richard Speck and Charles Whitman. What do you know? Yeah, this uh, this Bob Smith was a real was a real sick piece of piece of work. You know, he was a copycat uh, killer. Yeah. And yes, unfortunate. You know, uh, people died, innocent people died. But so we have to understand: during the 1960s, there were two mass school shootings. None in the 40s, none in the 50s, two in the 60s. So there you have it. Yeah, the 70s. Um in addition to that, the 70s, we have, there were three mass school shootings. December 30th, 1974, in New York, Anthony Barbaro, a 17-year-old Regent scholar armed with a rifle and a shotgun, killed three adults, wounded 11 others at his high school, which was closed for the Christmas holiday at the time. Barbaro was reportedly a loner who kept a diary describing several battle plans for his attack on the school. How sick is that? June 12th. 1976, CSU, California State University, Fullerton Massacre, where the school's custodian opened fire with a semi-automatic rifle in the library on the CSU Fullerton campus, killed seven and wounded two. Three years later, January 29, 1979, Grover Cleveland Elementary School shootings, California, where a 16-year-old girl opened fire with a rifle, a gift from her father, she killed two and wounded nine. So, you know, Lucky, you know, we need to take a look at something. These three school shootings, 74, 76, and 79, 79. what was happening politically right before then were these mass protests uh, in America against the Vietnam War. We had a lot of, of social discord and social um, uh, wringing of hands. This was a... This was a terrible time during uh, uh, America's history where there was a lot of political and social unrest. And as a result, this is what we see. This is what we see. Uh, do you mind if I, we take a look at the 80s now? During sure. the 80s, during the 80s, mass school shootings occurred during the later half of the decade. At least 71 people, 65 students and six school employees, had been killed with guns at school. 201 were severely wounded by gunfire. 242 individuals were held hostage at gunpoint. And moving on, moving on during the 1990s, the United States, we saw a sharp increase in gun and gun violence in the schools, having what, a total of 240 homicides occurred during this, this era itself. And uh, take a look at, at the 2000 to present, there were 147 homicides occurred. By the way, um, this data, <laughs> we're not making it up, has been obtained from K-12 Academics website and uh, Wikipedia. So, I mean, do you see a trend here? I mean, oh, all of this. Yeah, Nikki, Nikki, absolutely we see a trend uh, because what was happening during, the, uh, during these, uh, the 80s and 90s was a, a direct campaign 
by, uh, by government employees themselves. Uh, and we're going to talk about that uh, later in this broadcast. But this is not an accident. This is an orchestrated, if you will, uh, attempt to indoctrinate uh, people about the evil of guns and then some, of course, some people then acting on that. You see, we have to understand how all of this happened. I mean, this, is, this didn't happen in a vacuum. We have to go back in history just a little bit, Nikki, okay, to take yeah. a look yeah, at, at how, this, how, how the U.S. developed into this anti, anti-gun mentality. You see, we go back to the urbanization that took place in America by virtue of the Industrial Revolution. People right. in the urban areas did not have to rely upon hunting and fishing for food procurement. Their need for hunting rifles became less important. The Industrial Revolution, which took place from 1760 to 1840, saw for the first time living standards of the masses of ordinary people begin to uh, undergo a dramatic sustained growth. The Industrial Revolution concentrated labor into mills, factories, and mines, thus facilitating the organization of labor combinations or trade unions to help advance the interests of working people. So in America, the country was developing and dividing along the lines of the industrial north and the agricultural south. It should be noted that slavery existed in America. We can't forget that. We all know it. However, since the slaves worked for far less than organized labor, slaves were, part of, were not part of the industrial north. Sl- the south was agrarian and, uh, and not industrial like the north. So the slaves were used extensively in the workplace. And where was that workplace? The farm fields. The farm fields. Right. Now, this brings us to uh, the most, uh, as a result of this slavery issue and litigation and such that was going on to end slavery, we saw the worst, absolute worst U.S. Supreme Court decision in the history of the United States. It was the worst thing that could have happened to the United oh, States. Oh, my gosh. Well, allow me to interrupt you for a minute here, and I'll, I'll get back with you with that one, the, uh, the worst Supreme Court decision. Allow me to interrupt you, Richard. Folks, we are not making this up. Uh, I agree totally on this. Information obtained, all of this data information can be obtained from Wikipedia, PBS, Public Broadcasting Service website, and uh, also found in the Library of Congress website, Library of Congress website. And also, uh, did I mention the Encyclopedia Britannica website as well? Yes. Go back to the Supreme Court decision. Um, Dred Scott versus Sanford, 1857, U.S. 393, was a landmark decision by the U.S. Supreme Court in which the court held that African Americans, whether slave or free, could not be American citizens and therefore had no standing to sue in federal court. Black people in America were thought by many to be less than human. Yes, uh, Nikki, how repulsive a Supreme Court decision. However, the, uh, the new Republican Party that was forming at that time that later elected um, Abraham Lincoln considered this ruling to be not binding precedent, which means they labeled it as dictum. Now, dictum is a Latin term meaning that the ruling was outside of the court's authority, that this ruling was meaningless. The Republican Party stood up and said this ruling was outrageous. Ah, now we get to this uh, war between the states, the war of the northern aggression, or is it a civil war? Each title is descriptive of a particular political ideology. However, regardless of one's point of view regarding causation of the war, 
the results are indisputable. The North won, and the slaves were freed. That's right. See, the freeing of the slaves scared a lot of people, uh, mostly white people. Importantly, they feared that the possession of guns by newly freed slaves was a threat to them. As a result of lobbying by Southern Democrats, a series of laws were enacted that prohibited the ownership or carrying of guns by blacks. Now, we're going to talk about the racist roots of gun control um, in a couple of weeks when we get to that, uh, that segment. But suffice it to say <laughs> that with the passage of laws prohibiting just anyone from owning and carrying guns, wholesale indoctrination was now embarked upon to convince urban population that guns should only be in the hands of the qualified. Uh, qualified well, just who were the qualified? <laughs> who were the qualified? Then? Well, <laughs> the qualified were anyone of whom the political power structure said they were. And Allow we know at that time, the whites. Right. Allow me to be back on your statement, God. This is just, in the Northeast, the power structure set about demonizing those who carried a gun as people who had bad motives. After all, a person does not carry a handgun unless they intend to, to use it, right? <laughs> all across the metropolitan areas of the Northeast, one restrictive law after another become enacted. They were originally meant to only keep guns out of the hands of the blacks. However, in their attempt to cover up their racist ideology, the laws were enforced in a most discriminatory manner. They were enforced upon blacks and to a lesser extent than whites. Again, folks, um, we're not making this up. This information can certainly be obtained from the Library of Congress website and from Wikipedia. Please go on, Richard. What are you in Yeah, Yeah, Nikki, that's exactly right. And now we get to the middle of the, uh, of the 20th century, and here we are uh, in 1979 when the U.S. Department of Education was created October 17, 1979, it was, it was one of the last acts uh, by President Jimmy Carter. Remember, the election uh, was just another two and a half weeks later. So the, uh, that, that's when the, the DOA came into existence. It began operating, however, uh, uh, about six months later in May, May 4, 1980. It opens up, and now now starts the war on private gun ownership, yeah. officially launched by the Democratic Party as an official goal of the U.S. government. We see a department of the U.S. government now pontificating and issuing uh, propaganda that guns are evil. This is where it starts right here in public education. President Ronald Reagan promised during his 1980 presidential election to eliminate the Department of Education as a cabinet post said, if I'm elected president, I'm going to do away with this thing. Unfortunately, we had the, the Democratic House of, Re of Representatives, and he just couldn't get it passed. In 1982, during his State of the Union address, he pledged, quote, the budget plan I submit to you on February 8th will realize savings by dismantling the Department of Education. Uh, with that said, Richard, did you know I want to piggyback on this one. Throughout the 1980s, the abolition of the Department of Education was a part of the Republican Party platform, but the administration of President George W. Bush declined to implement this idea as he was in favor of the department's existence, but rather reformed its activities. In 1996, 
the Republican Party made abolition of the department a cornerstone of their campaign promises, calling it an inappropriate federal intrusion into local, state, and family affairs. The GOP platform read something like this. The federal government has no constitutional authority to be involved in school curricula or to control jobs in the marketplace. This is why we will abolish the Department of Education and end federal meddling in our schools and promote family choices at all levels of learning. In addition, during his 1996 presidential run, Senator Bob Dole promised, we are going to cut out the Department of Education. In 2000, the Republican Liberty Caucus passed a resolution to abolish the Department of Education. Abolition of the organization was not pursued under the George W. Bush administration, which made reform of federal education a key priority of the president's first term, 2008, and in 2012, President can candidate Ron Paul campaigned in part on an opposition to the department. <laughs> you know, our listeners should be asking themselves by now, what does all of this history have to do with guns and children in the home? And we have only a minute to go here <laughs> while we're having fun. <laughs> well, you know, Nikki, what, we're going to be talking about this uh, in our next show, uh, yes. uh, Guns and Children in the Home Part 2. We'll be part talking two. about this next week. Exactly. Um, you know, this is an exciting subject, one that it, the answers of which are not, uh, just clear cut. They they go all the way back to the founding of our country, the transition yes. uh, into yes. a, a from solely an agrarian nation to one right. that was divided along urban uh, urban and agrarian lines. So there's a lot. A lot uh, to cover here. To, yeah. Yes, and well, we're going to be talking about this history about next this uh, in our next right. show. Absolutely. Well said. Well said. I haven't mentioned this before, but Mr. Safani has interviewed uh, the famous Ted Nugent. Yes, Ted Nugent, uh, at an NRA event in the past. Uh, you want to say something like that? Yeah, yeah that, that was fun. Uh, during the 2005 NRA National Convention in Houston, Texas, uh, I, uh, I was the MC of a television uh, broadcast, and I had the privilege of inter interviewing him for two full hours, and, and uh, I was very impressed with him. Just, you know, just as I am impressed with you, Nikki, you are a wonderful and dynamic uh, hostess, and uh, I, I'm enjoying uh, my interview with you every bit as much as I enjoyed that time with Ted Nugent. Oh, thank you so much. I'm grateful, and I'm very humbled to have you and to have you know the listeners to have you as our guests and everything. All right, tune in on next Friday, July 26th at 10 a.m. Same channel, same bat station. Um, by the way, uh, part two of Guns and Children in the Home, and uh, come back and join us again for such cultural discussion. Oh, Nikki, I'll discussion. see you. I'll, Nikki, I'm going to see you in the morning. Oh, that's right. Tomorrow, yes, right. We have an NRA, uh, the NRA Woman on Target. I am a clinic director of the NRA Woman on Target Instructional Shooting Clinic this weekend. Um, it is an introduction. It's a class. It's an introduction to sports shooting to women, a program that has been around since 1999. To date, nationwide, total over 77,000 new woman shooters since it began. Nationwide, it has hit record. So, yes, Richard Stefani is one of our assistant instructors at that event. Please come back, you guys. I'm running out of time. And, uh, again, thank you so very much. In the meantime, be All safe. Right. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Stay bye. vigilant. And uh, finish in yellow. <laughs> Watch your six. I'm Nikki Dare. I'm signing off and off to Malibu. Enjoy your weekend, everybody. Thank bye you bye. so very much. Thank you, Richard. See you then.
You have been listening to Nikki Dares Radio, a podcast of sustainability with your host, Ms. Nikki Dare. To learn more, please visit Ms. Dare's website, education.nikkidare.com. Workshops on safety preparedness, situational awareness are available. Also available, the Transformational Coaching Series. For corporate and private group pricing, please contact us. She also offers both private and group classes in firearms training, handgun, rifles, and shotgun for individuals and families and home invasion scenarios. For details on Nikki Dare's outdoor hiking, yoga, and her other outdoor activities and her passion for fitness and upcoming classes, please visit her website, NikkiDare.com. Join the community conversation to network and learn on different outdoor fun on her website, NikkiDare.com slash freeforum. Follow her on LinkedIn and her social media, Twitter, Instagram, Google+, Pinterest, and Facebook. Or simply watch her tutorial videos. You can subscribe to her YouTube channel, Nikki Dare. All about her books and inspirational quotes can be found on her website, books.nikkidare.com. Check out her newest website, travel.nikkidare.com, for all travel resources, savings, and tips. Her calendars, both of living in purpose and passion, as well as her exclusive edition of Firearm Safety, are available for order on her website, NikkiDare.com. All of her broadcasts are available for free download on iTunes podcast, Nikki Dare. For more details on opportunities for sponsorships and speaking engagement, please email us at education at NikkiDare.com. Join her next time, living in purpose and passion. Our mission is to live a sustainable life with your host, Nikki Dare. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.